the reason that they're crossing the desert is purely desperation. If they stay, it's death. If they cross a desert, they may die, but they might make it. I'm Mitch, and I'm Missy. We're coworkers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. We are looking forward to Halloween. It's just right around the corner. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with a very special guest. Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre is a international scholar, documentarian, novelist, academic author, and just a prophet in today's age. And he has some incredible things to say during the interview. And you're going to want to listen to his voice because it is a voice that we all need to hear. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Happy Halloween, Missy. Thanks. Happy Halloween to you. So have you got your costume all laid out? Oh, God. I have some suggestions for you. Do you? (laughs) Are they appropriate for our listeners? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) When you were a kid, what did you dress up as? Oh, my goodness. Um, I had, do you remember the old plastic costumes that you bought at the grocery store? Oh, yeah, sure. They were like all plastic in a plastic mask. Oh, yeah. yeah and you, we thought those were the greatest things. Oh, they were awesome. Right? So my mom started making our costumes. <laughs> I remember... Okay. Did you grow up in an Amish house? <laughs> no, but my mother could sew, and she was incredibly talented. And one year, my brother wanted to be the Incredible Hulk. Awesome. This would have been probably... Oh, this is like David Banner. Uh, I mean, like 70s Hulk with Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk. So I don't know. Yeah, th- th- okay. I, I grew up in that era, too. So okay. trust me, this is who we're talking about. All right. Um, so... My brother wanted to be the Hulk and my mom got, you know, she got away from the grocery store costumes, thankfully, and started making our costumes. So she made my brother the, I guess, ripped up t-shirt. And oh, jeans. yeah, yeah. But to make him green, she <laughs> took a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> and what kind of toothpaste? Put food coloring in it. Green food <laughs> And the funny thing is, we did not find this at all weird. (laughs) Did he he walk around minty fresh all night? Until adulthood, he must have. I don't know. I thought nothing of this. Oh, my gosh. And then one year, I was obsessed as a kid with Miss Piggy. I don't know where this came from, but Mm -hmm. loved Miss Piggy. And so my mom made me head-to-toe custom-made Miss Piggy costume. I mean, the, the dress... The full face mask was all wow. completely handmade. You've seen it. It's actually downstairs in our closet. Maybe I should model it for the Facebook page. <laughs> yes. Hey, you yes, guys. yes. This is a plug. You should go and follow us on the Facebook, Good Faith Weekly, and then I will post a picture of this costume. Well, let's just up at one. If we can get $200 of donations by Monday, oh. we will post that photo. Even, even better because the funny thing is, it, while the mask was super impressive, the the wig was all yarn and uh, really unbelievable. But for the um, embellishments, shall we say, 
I don't know what you're talking about. Could you explain that, please? (laughs) An entire pillow (laughs) into the chest. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, what you're not visualizing right now, so let me help you, is Missy is giving uh, descriptions to the pillows where they are. I'm I'm trying to show you where where the pillow was. And all of this stuff, now that you're saying this, I'm just now realizing how crazy this is (laughs) because my mother sent an eight year old girl (laughs) to school. With cleavage. With, oh, I mean, it was beyond cleavage. <laughs> oh, my this gosh. Pillow, I, again, did not make this connection until just now. But Wow. Um, yeah. Well, so those are my childhood Halloweens. Well, maybe we need to start a therapy offering maybe, a good faith meeting. Maybe. What was your favorite costume ever? Uh, you know, I had so many. Like you, I had a lot of the plastic costumes uh, that we just bought off the rack. Uh, but one that uh, we created... Now, again, I'm a kid of the 70s, and one of my favorite shows growing up was Happy Days. And the oh, coolest, the I was the Fonz, and so I dressed <laughs> up as the Fonz. Now, what was great is a couple of years later, I could wear the same costume, but then I could just be Danny, Danny Zuko in Greece. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, I don't have that costume and I would not fit in it if I did. So I will not be posting that. So do you remember the year that our kids were little? I mean, you know, like preschool, maybe Cole was in kindergarten or something. I don't remember. And we had our, our dear friends that we always trick-or-treated with. And our good friend slipped um, a fart machine <laughs> Into one of the kids' <laughs> trick or treat bags. I do remember. So this. we would walk the neighborhood, and we would stand on the sidewalk, and then the four four of our kids would go up to the door, you mm-hmm. know, knock on the door, and then our friend had the remote control for the <laughs> fart machine. <laughs> and when they got to the door, he would let her rip, activate it, and just watch how people would be so uncomfortable. Oh my gosh! Those are good, uh, good times. Also, when I, another great story from my adolescence is that. One time, my brother, who is incredibly mischievous, and I haven't really told a lot of stories about my younger brother. You should. He's very ornery. There will be a, one story in particular I will tell at Christmas time. Oh, you will. Uh, yeah. But uh, there was one Halloween where he was, you know, probably 14, 15 years old, and uh, he threw a sheet over himself and went as Casper the ghost. But he went across the street to our neighbor's house where he had a, a friend over there and Uh, His friend was out doing something, so his parents were there. So he got this pair of shoes, and he knelt down and put his knees on the shoes and then covered himself with the... the sheet and knocked on the door. And so it helped. made himself look really like, yeah, short, yeah, like, like a, a little, little kid. kid. Yeah, yeah. So they answered the door and said, oh, you look so cute. Here's your candy. And he got the candy. And I guess they didn't notice his hairy hands. But, well, he probably <laughs> had his hands under the sheet. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're fine. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, they gave him the candy and they closed the door and he, he goes off snickering. Well, then he decides to go back. <laughs> <laughs> he knocks on the door. They answer it, and they said, "Oh, didn't you already come by here, little you know, little boy?" <laughs> In a deep voice, he says, "Give me the candy." <laughs> <laughs> and both of them at the same time said, "Tyler, Randall, get back to your house." <laughs> Oh, it was great. We loved Halloween. Yeah, you and I both did. We had great time when our kids were little. Now we just kind of like. I don't know, ignore the kids. I was going to say, we turn the lights off and we hide in the back. No, you remember during, it, I don't think it was last year, but maybe the year before, at kind of the height of, of the pandemic mm-hmm. when it was, we weren't even sure the 
people could trick or treat. You thought you were going to provide some fun for the kids, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So at the last minute, you create this little like ball oh the game, yeah. Game. Remember what yeah. was the show that we? It used was to watch Bozo, the Bozo the Clown, the grand prize game. So I was just in a foul mood and didn't want any part of it. And you were like, "I'm going to create this game." Yeah, she was being the Wicked Witch of uh, Norman. <laughs> I really that night. was not feeling it. And so you went and gathered up buckets and Halloween decor and you know decorated this game on the driveway and thought you're going to let these kids play the game and then they get candy and it's going to be so funny anyways. So about 15 minutes in, you came in just begging me like, please come help me. What you didn't factor in (laughs) was when you give kids a game with balls and buckets, how much time and effort you have to spend chasing down (laughs) balls because they go everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. (laughs) And there's just enough of an incline on the driveway that of course they're going out into the street. And so I spent the entire night when I didn't even want to be part of it, (laughs) chasing down. But you made so many kids night. I mean, that was silly. It was crazy, but it was during the pandemic. And uh, so I I think we did a little good that night. Sure. I mean, you did it through clenched teeth, but we did it. I was was more than a little annoyed at that, but the the kids did have fun. Well, whatever you're dressing up as this year, we hope that you have a happy Halloween and, you know, we are the type of Christians that... Or wait, Jesus Ween. Have you seen that sign no, on the bus? No. Yes, apparently oh, there's some no. churches doing Jesus please Ween. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, when I was a pastor, all these churches wanted to do all these trunk or treat events mm-hmm. on Halloween night and to keep the kids safe and to keep them from demonic experiences. And it was like, no, no. We did, um, but just not on Halloween. Did not on Halloween, on no. Halloween, we wanted to be out in our neighborhood. That's how yeah. we got to know neighbors. Absolutely. Just, you know, nobody's really out as much as, as you know, maybe they once were mm. and don't know your neighbors. I think Halloween's a great opportunity to get out and be amongst your, your people and your your neighbors that you may not know. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, we got to know somebody this week, Missy, and we actually heard Dr. Uh, Tora speak, De La Tour, uh, speak in Kansas City uh, a few months ago. He just knocked it out of the park. We were blown away with his words and his sermon. And so we invited him to be a guest on the podcast. He is now, thankfully, a contributing correspondent for Good Faith uh, Media. He's uh, writing two columns a month for us, and they're already outstanding. I've already got the first. I, I, we've got the first two. I already got the next two, believe it or not, for November. So they're he really good. He is definitely a prophet of our day. Yeah. I mean, he just makes, he's challenging. Um he makes you think. He is inspiring. I, I like I told him in our interview, and I'm I was not lying. You and I were scribbling as fast as we could during his yeah. presentation because he was so fantastic. So stay tuned. Him. Missy and I talked to Reverend Doctor Miguel De La Torre. Hey, listeners! Check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly on this episode. We've got a very special guest with us all the way from Denver, Colorado. Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre is an international scholar, documentarian, novelist, academic author, and scholar activist. The focus of Dr. de la Torre's academic pursuit is social ethics within the contemporary U.S. thought, specifically how religion affects race, class, and gender oppression. He has authored over a hundred articles and published 41 books, including 
burying white privilege, resurrecting a badass Christianity, and decolonizing Christianity, becoming badass believers. He has a new book coming out in January 2023 entitled Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. He presently serves as a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Isla School of Theology, a Fulbright scholar. He has taught in Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, Germany, and lectured in Costa Rica, Cuba, Palestine, Thailand, and Taiwan. Wow, you're a busy man. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Lejosor, we recently had the privilege of hearing you speak at the Space for Grace con- conference. Oh, it was more than speaking, Missy. He just preached I mean, it. He laid it out there. I couldn't there. type fast <laughs> enough to, to get the entire dictation of, of his sermon, and that's why we invited you here today. We just basically want you to retell the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, it was not even preaching. I mean, he was Old Testament prophet. I mean, he, he could have it had... Was it was amazing. Uh, but you began your remarks uh, with a provocative statement about not wasting time speaking truth to power. And I will tell you one thing, Mitch has quoted this <laughs> to everybody we come across on the sidewalk, in the grocery store. That's right. That's so right. tell us why you are no longer wasting your time speaking truth to power. I, I, you know, we always hear speak truth to power and, and, and that becomes a mantra that we're supposed to follow. But I'm beginning to realize that that's a waste of time. Power already knows the truth. They know what they're doing. They know that they need to do this if they want to accumulate profit, privilege, and power. So to waste my time speaking truth to power takes away from the real work. So, so the, the, the second half of that line is I'd rather speak truth to the powerless. Because all too often the powerless minds are so colonized that they believe the lies of those in power. And believing those lies, um, they then begin to follow um, uh, policies that are detrimental to their very being. So what I'm doing is the old liberationist theology understanding of raising consciousness. And I'm trying to raise that consciousness among those who are powerless. Mm. And if those who have power are to listen and they're to be convicted, great, all power to that. But that's not my main mission. I mean, this was revolutionary to me. I mean, I, I you just put all the pieces together for me because, you know, we've been talking about at Good Faith Media for so long, talking truth to power, and it's like banging our head against the wall. And when you pointed out, you know what, the powerful, they know what to do. We've been telling, we've been speaking truth to them for a long time, and they're just refusing to do it. And pivoting to speaking truth to the powerless was just so profound. And you talk about this, these these powerless minds. And you mentioned a moment ago that uh, you claimed in your, your sermon, the, uh, the colonized mind has possessed the powerless. And you even tell a story from your own life about being pulled over by the police of what that colonized mind means. So can you talk more about this, this colonization of mind and how it's, how it's possessed us and even uh, share the story that uh, you mentioned in the sermon? Absolutely. So, so when I was a young, uh, twenty-year-old, you know, my hair down to my shoulder, you know, hot-looking <laughs> hot Latino, um, I decided to drive from Miami up to um, New York City for the weekend, 
And in, a, in doing my drive, I got pulled over in New Jersey for speeding. Um, and, and when the police officer came to the door, they asked if they could search my vehicle, which I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And they did, and they found nothing, thank God. And, and, and then as they were basically getting letting me leave, and I asked them, well, what were you looking for? And, and the officer said, well, um, young Latino men with Dade County license plates from Miami heading to New York are suspected of trafficking in cocaine. This is back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and as I left, you know, rather than the indignation of being racially profiled, what went through my mind is, thank God the cops are doing their job. In other words, my mind was so colonized that I was seeing myself and defining myself through the eyes of the very structures that are designed to oppress me. And that's what I mean by having colonized minds, that we do not see with our own eyes, but we see through the eyes, uh, in my case, of the dominant white supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. And, and in that in, in, in that manner, I become my own disciplinarian. I discipline myself to, you know, to, to, to act as, you know, uh, as non-Latino as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to break um, in, in, in the work I'm doing. Yeah, it's, that was great. That was just a, a great point you made. It was. So you suggest that hope has become weaponized to keep marginalized people marginalized. What do you mean by this, and how can hope be problematic? Yeah, I mean one of the well, hope is one of the one of the um, gifts of the spirit. Um, so, so here I am saying, no, we got to get rid of hope. So it sounds <laughs> very contrary to the very um, Christian message. But what hope has has become is a way of domesticating uh, the powerless. Uh, and, and the example that I give is um, the sign over Auschwitz when you walk through the gates that says work will set you free. Mm. Now, that's a lie, but that's a lie designed to provide hope. And and if I'm going through those gates and I think that 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 work might save me, might might set me free, um, and and I keep my head down, I don't make waves, I I try not to fight, the end is going to be the same, Um, you know, massacre, slaughter. Mm -hmm. So hope becomes a way of of the marginalized policing themselves not to rebel against those who have power over them. When I am hopeless, when I have nothing to lose, that's when I become the most dangerous. That's when I am willing to take radical actions to change structures. And and that's the kind of work I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, to realize it's not going to get better unless they take radical actions. Mm. Now, I, um, I know you got a follow-up, but you know, as you're sitting here talking about this, and, and I heard it in your uh, sermon last month, I'm just reminded of Jesus. And how you describe this, I think, is very accurate, because you think about the life of Jesus and uh, what he was able to accomplish in the short time he was here on this earth, you know, it wasn't really about hope, but it was about desperation. And when he strides into Jerusalem that final week, it's out of desperation. And he didn't have anything to lose. And, exactly. And so, I mean, that, that, that just, man, that echoed in my mind. 
And, and the prophet of hope, which is um, Yogan Mutman in mm-hmm. his book, Theology of Hope, right. he tells us that the opposite of hope is despair. And despair means that I roll up in a fetus position and I gnash my teeth because there's nothing I can do. It's, you know, there's absolutely no reaction that, that, that I can take to the situation. But as you said, the opposite of hope is not despair, but desperation. Mm-hmm. Desperation propels us to action uh, because if we do nothing, we'll die. And if we do something, we may still die, but things might change. I love that. Well, you just covered my next question, which is why is desperation more motivating than hope? I could give you an example. I mean, I, I, one of the things I do is um, I, I walk the, the migrant trails between the United States and Mexico as people are coming over um, to provide water and food and, and medical attention. And, and I could tell you from my conversations with many of these migrants, the reason that they a crossing is not out of hope that, you know, they hope to come to a, a better life and, and have a better future. Um, no, you know, the reason that they're crossing the desert is purely desperation. I mean, if they stay, it's death. Mm-hmm. If they cross a desert, they may die, but they might make it. Mm-hmm. And it's that desperation that propels them into the desert. Um, and, and that's the type of desperation that I'm, I'm i'm trying to build this 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 ethical perspective upon yeah i mean i couldn't agree with you more especially about the migrants uh, who are heading uh in the direction of the united states we were recently down at the u.s mexico border meeting with local pastors on both the uh, mexican side and the u.s side and when we go over to the the uh, shelters where they had established for migrants we would in- talk to these migrants and interview them and you're exactly right i mean their stories are stories of desperation and you know traveling all that way uh you know it's it's not about hope it's about desperation because they're just trying to survive trying to keep mm-hmm. their families alive and provide for their families so uh man what you're saying just really really resonates so you mentioned something else i'm going to go off script here for a minute if you don't mind um just a moment ago that i have in my notes from hearing you speak about ethics and i um we'll say ethics to mess with because we're a family show. (laughs) So ethics to mess with the structure. So I don't think that's what he said. That's not. (laughs) But at the risk of getting bleeped out too many times on this episode, I'll say mess with. So talk, tell us about the ethics that mess with structure. Well, well, let me let me take a step back. Um, I will respect not using the word that I use, <laughs> um, even though I use it in Spanish. And most people have oh, no idea what that means. You can say it in Spanish; it's fine. Oh, okay. We're good. So I, I talk about an ethics para joder. Mm-hmm. And joder is like you said—a word you never use right. in polite company. It's yeah. a, similar to a certain four-letter word in English that begins with F and ends with K. Yeah, and and and. Even, you know, and people have pushed back, well, that's vulgar. Why are you using vulgar language? And and my response is, we are forced to live a vulgar life. Mm -hmm. We live in the vulgarity of white supremacy. So the language should be the least of our concern. If we're more concerned with the vulgarity of the language and not the vulgarity of of the experience and the situation, then our Christian values are in the wrong place. So, so I do use um, that strong word because it's an ethics that messes with the structures. Mm-hmm. 
when neoliberalism has won, when white supremacy is going to be with us for a long time, when you see the rise of white na uh, Christian nationalism, if you attack it head on, you probably will get killed, literally, if not economically or, or you know, or, or some other way. Um, and, 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 and the reason being because those who have the power who support these structures of oppression will continue to hold on to it at whatever cost. Um, so how do I rebel? How do I resist without getting killed in the process? And, and what I'm tapping into is something that commu uh, oppressed communities throughout the centuries have always done. And that is um, tap into this trickster image or this trickster figure. So all marginalized communities have trickster figures. Uh, the indigenous communities has coyote and spider and the African-American communities has bear rabbit and bear bear. Um, the Latinx community has everything from Cantinfra in Mexico to Juan Bobo in Puerto Rico to Pepito in Cuba. Um, and for my own background, uh, which was Santeria, uh, an Afro-Cuban religion, we have Elegua, who is the African uh, trickster deity from Yorubaland. So I'm tapping into how do I do my Christian ethics from my own roots, from my own culture, and and I'm pulling in, I'm pulling on this on this trickster image, um, and the trickster basically operates not you know to mess with the structures mm -hmm. by holding the structures accountable to the rhetoric that they claim to believe in, um, to to unmasking the hypocrisy between their rhetoric and their actions um, to shame them to maybe do what's moral and what's ethical and what's right. So this is the kind of um, ethics that I've been working on and presenting in my writings and an ethics that, that screws with the structures of oppression. Yeah. And again, that was just so, so profound when you said, you know, for so long we've used the rhetoric of we're in this fight and there's a possibility of winning it. And the reality is we're not going to win, but what we can do is mess with the system, screw with the system. Uh, and it, when you, you laid this out, it, I just continued to hear the words of the late Congressman John Lewis mm -hmm. encouraging us to go get in good trouble. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So. You know, and, and that's a good example. He's yeah. an individual since his young 20s have been fighting against uh, racial discrimination in this country. Mm -hmm. And he dies on the, you know, you know as a Trump presidency arises. Right. Things have gotten, some would say, worse. Exactly. So, you know, his whole life, he didn't win. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he moved the conversation forward and he moved the dial forward. Yeah. And many Absolutely. people say, well, well, why bother then if you're not going to win? If, if you're not going to change structures for the better, why bother doing this ethics stuff? Mm -hmm. And my response is, you know, if you're, if you're doing this because you think you're going to win, you, you, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. If you're doing it because you think you're going to get an extra ruby on your crown when you get to heaven, <laughs> then this is a transactional agreement, which, again, is the wrong reason. Exactly. You obviously I, I didn't think, grow up in the same church that I did. 
I fight for justice, not because I think I'm going to win, or not because I'm going to get any extra treasures in heaven. I fight for justice because that is what defines the faith that I claim to have. And more importantly, it defines my very humanity. Mm. I love that. Well, Dr. De La Torre, we welcomed you this week as a good faith uh, cor- contributing correspondent, and we're really excited about uh, you coming aboard our, ter- our team. Earlier this week, you wrote an article titled, How Should Christians Work to Overcome Oppression? And you make some, again, very interesting points concerning nonviolent responses to violent actions, especially the notion of the oppressor dictating the terms of nonviolent reaction. Can you kind of follow up and help us explore that line of thinking? Yeah. I find it fascinating that every time oppressed people, marginalized people, begin to wrestle with um, the issue of can you use violence as a form of liberation, white liberals come along and say, we need to be nonviolent, while ignoring their complicity with the violence that got them the status and privileges they hold. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, we, you know, this nation sells more weapons, um, not for geopolitical reason, but just purely for profit Mm -hmm. throughout the whole world. We're the major supplier of the violence that occurs on this globe today by the weapons that we sell to anybody willing to buy. And yet, when marginalized groups say, well, you know, how can we get some of these guns to protect ourselves? It's like, oh, no, no, you have to be nonviolent. So, so I begin by really um, saying that, 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 that this Eurocentric Christianity has lost all moral authority to say anything about who can and cannot use violence. Martin Luther King called the United States the greatest procure of violence yeah. that we know. Um, so I, I begin there. And so, so if that's the case, then do communities of color have a right to engage in violence? And, and not, not so much engage in violence, but respond to violence that already is occurring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, if, and I think I mentioned this in the article, if based on a lie, white people stormed the Capitol to protect rights that they were not losing, right? Right. Why can't people of color storm the Capitol in response to the actual decimation, the actual killing of people of color when they're pulled over by a police office by by, by the police, mm-hmm. or economically are being um, killed and strangled? Um, you know, and I'm not advocating violence, you know, I want to be very clear, but I do want to say that that conversation is one that we have to have among ourselves. Yeah. I'm I'm influenced by, um, Cesar Chavez who said, I am not a nonviolent man. I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent. And and that's where I find myself right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that particular article is really the abstract to a new book that I have begun to write yeah. um, uh, on, on, on can people of color in the United States use violence as a means of liberation. Mm. 
What was and it? I don't know what the answer is yet. <laughs> <laughs> You'll let us know. Well, the article was fantastic. For our listeners who want to find it, you can go to goodfaithmedia.org and look at the articles of this week. It was absolutely fantastic. But you also have a, an upcoming book due out in a couple of months uh, titled Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. And I will tell you that I get final edits on our questions. Mitch originally had this one. I stole it just so I could say badass three or four times. But so, you won't. <laughs> let him say the other word. Well, you know, I do have a line. <laughs> so what, what is this badassery? There it is again. There it is. So. In case you missed it, uh, that you advocate for. It's interesting. Um, this is the third of a series of badass books. Uh, the first one was called burying white, uh, burying white privilege. Um, um, being a badass Christian, and the second one was decolonizing Christianity, and then now you have this one. So, so this is the third of those of, of those three books. Um, the first one was really just a, uh, an outgrowth of a little op-ed I wrote about the you know the, how Christianity is being destroyed at the hands of Christians, mm-hmm. and and then that ended up becoming a book. And and and, and these books I wrote them not. I mean, they're academic, they're scholarly, but but not in the scholarly tone. It was really written for the average layperson to read and understand what's going on, um, even though it's based on deep scholarship. Um, and this particular book um, deals with the fact that this country is definitely moving towards an apartheid uh, political democracy, kind of like what South Africa had. We are moving in that direction at, at a rapid speed. Just the number of laws that have passed um, suppressing the vote of people of color in the last two years, the um, the, the, the number of individuals being uh, running for office um, in position that could deny future elections that do not agree with the con- white wing conservative worldview. Um, you know the the, the continuous increase of gap between the very rich and the very poor. These things are leading us to an apartheid political system. Um, So the book is really more of a warning of what is to come. Um, We don't have to go down that road. But again, in my hopelessness, I see us moving in that direction. I notice that when you finish a book, you always have a great little shot of Cuban rum to celebrate the conclusion of a book. So we don't have Cuban rum with in our house, uh, Dr. De La Torre, but we do have a little tequila. So to the end of the interview, cheers, my friend. And, and you just totally stole my tequila. Not cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, and outed uh, me in front of everybody. That's Whatever. right. Cheers. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation. Before I let you go, I'm going to let Missy take it from here. So, Dr. De La Torre, before I ask the last question, I want to give you a moment to plug your, I believe you have a website. Um, yes, I do. Um, it, it, and in the website are all my books as, as well as um, all, all my articles and op-eds and, 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 and a bunch of more information, a couple of videos as well. And it's uh, DR, like in doctor, DR, uh, Miguel Delatore.com. Okie doke. Check him out. So our last question, uh, Dr. De La Torre, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell? 
Mm. I would say the more detail is a topic that we have ignored, and that is the degradation of our ecology. Um, I'm in the process of putting together a conference for next year, uh, which is going to be called Food Fight, when what we eat is weaponized. And, and the idea is to look at the intersection of, um, of, of racism and ethnic discrimination, environmental issues, and how the food that we eat is grown or, or raised so that's to create oppression. Um, and I think that's a conversation that needs to occur. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be great. So be on the lookout for that. That sounds extremely interesting. So thank you so much for putting that together. Well, Dr. De La Tour, thank you once again for being a guest here at Good Faith Weekly. And we just really appreciate all the incredible words and work that you are doing. You are making this world. You're challenging us. And may we be desperate so and screw with the system. <laughs> I got thank chills all over me. again listening to your, to your responses. So thank you so much. Yeah. And we'll be thank right you back. You bet. Thanks. We'll be right back. Well, Missy, I mean, are you as challenged as you were the first time we heard him speak? I feel like not to make light of uh, Dr. De La Torre's message, but like a Thanksgiving meal, I feel like you need extra time to digest. <laughs> okay. He speaks. Uh, okay. Does that make sense? So, it, yeah. It is, he offers so much to chew on. He kind of pulls back the curtain in such a way that that really forces you to look at things from a different perspective and see things in a new light. And yeah, it re he really challenges us. You know, I think, you know, in the sermon and in the interview, one of the things that immediately stood out to me is when he opened his sermon on with the notion that it was a waste of time to continue speaking truth to power because the powerful know what to do, and yet they continue to refuse to do it. Therefore, he was going to start speaking truth to the powerless. Mm -hmm. That is a complete change in strategy when it comes to doing social justice because for so long we felt like if we can only get through to the powerful if we can only communicate our message to those who have power then the system will eventually change and what dr de la torre is suggesting is that we have been preaching that message for over 200 years in this country and the powerful have only implemented change when it was absolutely necessary right. and they will continue to fight back and even to rig the system in order to regain that power. And a perfect example of that is after the civil war, when slavery was abolished with the 13th amendment, there are words in the 13th amendment that just basically rephrases slavery because it says in the 13th Amendment, you, you know, no one can own another person or enslave them unless they commit a crime. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the door was open for a new type of enslavement through the prison system. Mm -hmm. And you look at the numbers today and they're so skewed towards people of color being in prison. It's hard not to believe that this is what modern day slavery is. So when he talked about that and when he made that statement as as challenging as it was and as hard was it as hard as it was for me to hear 
I think there is a lot of truth in this new strategy of of speaking truth to the powerless because the powerful are just going to resist or create a new system in which they can oppress other people. I think it's still important to continue to speak truth to everyone. I mean, and I, I, I agree with what he's saying. It made so much sense. Um, but that doesn't mean we, we stop advocating, you know, to our elected officials and, and to our, um, the people who do have the power to make policy change. Right. I mean, it's just it's something we have to do. But power is just so seductive, and it is, it's really an intoxicating. And, it, and once, you know, people get in positions of power, it's really difficult to get yourself um, – to a point where you're willing to sacrifice some of that. Mm-hmm. So, now what he said made sense. I, I just my my one complaint is I had a couple of his quotes like <laughs> saved for the end of this, and he stole them from me. <laughs> well, of course he did. <laughs> and he talked about it, but I think I think one is just worth sharing again. But he talks about um, fight us, fighting for justice and isn't going to produce a win and that's not why we do it mm-hmm. we don't do it to get the w you know we do it because it, it's not only what our are tied to our faith but it's just our humanity you know it we fight for justice because that's what being a human is about and it's it's part of your humanity to continue to press on and to advocate the, for those who are um, unable to do so yeah you know and one of the things he hinted about uh but you know, we didn't have time to flesh it out, was I don't think we really understand how ingrained capitalism has become in our life, in our theology, in our worldview, that there has to be this constant struggle within humanity, not to just survive, but to be on top. And to win the game, so to speak, there has to be losers. There's ha- there has to be somebody beneath you. And so there is this constant uh, belief that we're in this eternal struggle between two sides. And it's really a false dichotomy if we try to understand the world that way. And I would say even more progressive people like you and I have fallen into that trap that we are fighting against fundamentalism, Christian nationalism, in an attempt to overcome it and eventually win the day. Mm-hmm. The reality is we're never going to win the day. And I know that's hard to believe because there's always going to be white nationalists. There's always going to be racism. There's always going to be economic uh, economic oppression by those who are rich and powerful. There is no winning in this game. The reason we do what we do, the reason that we stand up, speak out, and step forward for the causes of social justice is because we're human beings and we see other human beings oppressed and marginalized in the systems that exist today. And as a fellow human being, And for us, as a person of faith, as Jesus followers, we feel like we have a mandate to change the system in order for people to have a more equitable and prosperous life. On earth as it is in heaven. Might you say that? 
Well, I didn't say it. Jesus said oh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I just made it up. What are you talking about? And I do want to be clear that, that you know, we, we talk a good game, all of us, you sure. and me included. And we still, you know, revel in our comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still need people like Dr. Delator to to expose and make us a little more uncomfortable and challenge us to find ways in which we are being complicit in these systems Mm -hmm. that we are um, also choosing when to see truth and when not to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, when we know better, we do better on, on any number of of issues. And and so I, I so appreciate him and his voice and continuing to find ways to make me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, point out areas where, where we all need to do better. Now I know there was a moment in the interview that I know you probably connected with him more than, uh, either more than I did. And that was his comparison between hope and despair that he's no longer preaching hope, but he's preaching despair because I mean, I've lived with you for, you know, over almost three decades now, and that's your MO. I mean, you're all about the despair. I am. I am all about the glass half empty, you guys. Um, So, yes, he does. And he talks about um, also hopelessness in in the presentation he gave. I don't Mm -hmm. think he mentioned it in the interview, but I have another, um, you know, quote from him. It may not be word for word, but he says, hopelessness does not mean despair. It means desperation. Desperation, yeah. It's when you risk dying in the desert because staying is not an option. It's not hope, it's desperation. He did talk a little bit about that in the interview, but I just, I, you know, cannot fathom having to make the choices some people are making in the world today. And I just, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try our best to see that and to see them and to see the humanity and do what we can to to make the world better to disrupt the systems as he talks about you know he talks about Mm -hmm. screwing with the systems to um, being creative to upend you know the structures that are in place that cause these situations um, or prevent them from being rectified and I we were talking before we went on air about some examples biblically of you know screwing with the structures, basically. Um, you brought up a story that I think might be particularly ap- applicable. Yeah, it's so one of my we'll favorite have, stories in the Bible. We'll, we'll have a little Sunday school lesson for those <laughs> Gather around, kids. Gather around. It's time for Peppa to tell should, this week's Bible study. Should we sing this little light of mine or something before we get started? <laughs> yeah, yeah, grab your uh, crackers and juice and uh, we'll Ooh, get started. Sunday school butter. Do you remember, <laughs> Sunday school butter? Do you remember making butter in Sunday school? Yeah, I also remember eating Play-Doh. I ate both of them. Well, that says a lot about you. But do you remember that you'd squish the oh yeah, yeah. The milk and the and, the, and the, on the saltines with the orange oh uh, yeah what was it probably high C I don't know what it was oh yeah my gosh golly I think we may need to take a break so we can go get I a know. snack <laughs> okay, sorry. No. My, one of my favorite stories is found in the first chapter of Exodus and uh, you know just to, to set the scenario and a lot of our listeners know this story but uh, the there's a Pharaoh that rose in Jerusalem or rose in Egypt that did not know Joseph and began not to, Joseph, the father of Jesus, right? No, this okay. is old Testament. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, let's yeah, just clarify yeah, yeah. Uh, Joseph, uh, you know, coat of many colors. Okay. Uh, so becomes second in command in, that in Egypt, that guy. So there's a Pharaoh that rises in Egypt that does not know Joseph. And, he becomes worried that the Hebrews are continuing to populate. 
and therefore he begins this enslavement of the Hebrews and puts them to work and to force labor uh, to build uh, these cities that uh, he was wanting to build. And uh, it can, but that didn't deter them. He thought if he could uh, put them to work and enslave them, that they would stop populating. They wouldn't have time for other activities. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Um, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's another podcast that's good faith weekly after After hours (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so at any rate they they continue to have children continue to grow as a people group and so he decides to enact an edict that every male child firstborn of every male child would be killed Mm -hmm. and um is put into place uh, as a policy in Egypt that all the Hebrew male children were, if they were born, were to be killed. And he solicited the midwives to let them know when this was happening. Well, the midwives said, uh-uh, ain't going to do that. No way, no how. And so they would deliver these children and not report that they were male children. And then when confronted by the empire, they said, oh, I mean, you, you just don't understand how Hebrew women give birth. They're, they're a lot faster in labor than ordinary women. And so by the time we get there... They're already born, so we we can't do anything about it, and you know, and so they they contrive this lie uh, to perpetuate uh, the hopeful reality that these children are continuing to be born and to live, and God honors that; He honors their lie, mm-hmm. and. It is a direct illustration of how these women messed with the system. And God honored that because the system was oppressive. The system was unjust. The system was an evil. And so these women had to do what they did in order to save the lives of these babies. And so it's just this, this beautiful, beautiful story. And then, then it leads into the more personal story of the birth of Moses because he's born uh, in this, uh, during this edict. And so his mother gives birth, and they... They make this plan to put him in a basket. And, you know, with all due respect to Sousa de Mille, de, de Mille uh, it didn't go exactly like, you know, the Ten Commandments uh, said it did in the movie. They didn't have that good of special effects. Exactly. No, okay. no, no. Or spray tans or anything else. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, his mother and his older sister contrived this plan to strategically float him down the river and position him in front of the daughter of the Pharaoh. And because of their deception, because of their uh, wise strategy, even though it may not have been entirely ethical or truthful, God honors that. And because of that, that, uh, that kind of wise but maybe not all ethical strategy, situational, situ- ethics. situational ethics that they, they practice, not only does God honor it, but eventually the entire people, the entire Hebrew people are led out of captivity because of this little boy who was able to survive. 
And, you know, it's just, it's just an incredible reminder that just the little things we do to mess with the system and, and Dr. De La Torre uses a little stronger language than mess with the system, <laughs> but uh, his point is well taken. Yes. Use the word I use all too often, <laughs> probably. <laughs> no, no, you're not that. You're sweet and virtuous. <laughs> I think the point is, though, that we have to make sure that we are messing with the right systems at the right time for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people out there who mess with systems, who manipulate people, but their motivations maybe are not the best and not for the right reasons. So, right. Um, it's what uh, the late uh, congressman and Baptist preacher John Lewis used to uh, challenge everybody to go get into some good trouble. Good trouble. So, Mitch, we are about ten days away from an election. <laughs> ten days from election, yes. Um, I just there's way too much to unpack about all these debates that are happening right now. Um, but we did talk to Matthew Dowd last week, and we talked a little bit about Christian nationalism and kind of the out, outcome of that. If um, white Christian nationalists are able to continue to gain a foothold within our government. And so we really want to end today by saying, please vote. Please, please, please please vote. Um, Be informed. Be aware. Vote. Get a friend who can't drive themselves. Take them. You hear it every two years that this is the most important election of our lifetime. And a lot of times, That may be true in that instance. Sometimes it's hyperbole. But as we have heard from experts and scholars and people who are inside the system, the reality is democracy itself is at stake. I think our failing, as we talked to Matthew last week, was in that we have not realized that democracy has always been at stake, that it has never been a guarantee that it was an incredible gift we've been given and many of us, our, our country, we have taken it for granted. And so now we are um, seeing some of the consequences of that. Do your duty and make certain you go out and vote no matter what. Absolutely. And with that, we will sign off and we will be back again next week. Absolutely. Can't wait. Happy Halloween. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.